Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. David Gordon on the show. Hello, sir. How are you? Very well, Levy. Thanks for having me. Nice to see you. Yeah, same here. So you're a local guy. You grew up uh, in New York, yeah? I did. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Now, before we get totally started, I I wanted to read some names off because I know there's some people who are going to be listening for their names, and I don't want to put them through an hour-long show. So if you give me just 20 seconds, I'm just going to read the names real quickly. You got a list um, of names there. I got a list here. Yeah. So here we go. These are people that you, uh, people, people that I you've met. People I need to mention for various reasons, and, and I think it's important. These people know who you are. And they're going to be, these are, you're going to be adding. Are you name dropping here you're right now? Be are adding, you name dropping? No, them? I'm not name dropping, but you're going to be adding so going to be like, about Kareem 30 Jabbar. No, but you're going to be adding about 30 people to your podcast right now that are going to, could become listeners if they decide to. <laughs> I know you brought me in for the ratings. I'm like the Donald Trump of the podcast. So here we go. Drew, Marty, Avi, Wang, Jason, Jonathan, Josh, Eric, Christian, Nikita, Bowler, Jake, Lee, Laura, Michelle, Sarah, Evan, Anna, Mike, Olivia, Lindsay, Brom, Bethany, Daniel, Tim, Patrick, Yoshi, Inez, Angelina, Sean, and Laura, and then Cindy, Stacy, Peter, Gene, and Ginger. That's a person with a lot of middle names there. It's not bad. You'd think their parents could have just figured on, settled on one or something. You're surprised I knew so many people, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) No, man, you know everybody. You're the man. I do. But now you have these people. They don't have to listen. You know, a few weeks ago. These are like co-signers for the loan. You're (laughs) you're putting them in to see. if Just in case. If it doesn't go well, I can contact these people and complain. You know, the thing is, I had to listen to Ryan Mills Knapp's entire podcast before I heard my name. And Ryan worked for me for four years. So I don't want to put anybody through that. People now can turn, tune out. You know, that might be my fault. And, I, think, I did some editing on that one. I might maybe have, he might have it moved it around. Thank yeah. God he mentioned it. <laughs> that would have been it. You know, he might have mentioned more than was in there, actually. Yeah, I don't know. I'm glad you cut the yeah, rest yeah, out. Yeah, I'll show, I'll show it to you at the end of the interview. Now, the other thing, before we get into my upbringing in Brooklyn, which can go for an hour or two, um, I do want to discuss the Larry Stone podcast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think, I think that, that one is now we're talking. Now yeah. we're down in brass tacks, yeah. huh? Now, those six hours. Did I hear Larry's that, name? In the no, thing? you didn't, but I knew I would bring it up so Larry won't be offended. But um, those six hours that you interviewed Larry, and you only got up to junior high. So I'm, I'm He'd really already been forward. a wine taster by then. Come on. Yeah, that, He'd made well, crystal. Here's shit. the thing. At seven. He was decanting. At seven, he was blind tasting. And by eight, he was naming the varietal and the region. Now, granted, back then there was only Blue Nun and Matus Rosé, so it wasn't a big stretch. But, you know, when I was seven, maybe eight, the, what I was known for, I was the punch ball champion of PS197. So I think that's just as good as Larry, because he also was playing the violin. He was working on a senior thesis at Harvard. You're saying you're a public school guy. That's what you're trying to get across. Yes. I'm, From the streets. I'm, that's exactly right. <laughs> From the streets. <laughs> None of this privileged upbringing for you. Not for me. No, we didn't drink growing up. You didn't? Uh, no. no. Your parents no. weren't? No alcohol in the house? or? Oh, no, no. My, oh, they drank. <laughs> oh, I didn't. There was, no, um, there was no exposure to wine at all until I was, went to college. What was your dad like? Um, my dad um, was a travel agent. Okay. And um, my mom was, uh, worked in the school system. And so uh, my dad drank scotch and scotch only. And uh, even as I got into wine l- later in life, he would drink some wine with me, but it didn't have the impact 
that Doers on the Rocks did for him. He was always trying to send people to Scotland. He's like, he was, have <laughs> you visited Eiley? <laughs> He's he he actually was you know back then there were there isn't a, a career called travel agent anymore right but back then he was able Expedia, to travel all over right. the world without having any real money because they used to send you on trips so he did that he didn't take me though. it's like the podcast world <laughs> very, <laughs> very similar, similar. Yeah. yeah very similar but I mean uh, you were a happy kid or what yeah yeah were you always funny or was it well um, I never thought I was funny no until I went to college that was the first time I really thought um, making people laugh was you know it seemed to be a way to make friends as well but no i never thought it was funny my my dad was very funny my my mother was funny too you had to get out of your own neighborhood yeah of. i think so you grow up in a in a neighborhood in brooklyn like that and it's you know everybody thinks they're funny what you college know? you go to i went to cornell for uh hotel management actually but i i transferred in i started at albany state suny albany for business and a year and a half in, I, I decided I wanted to be in a restaurant business. Why'd uh, you make that decision? You know, I'm not sure. Um, I knew I didn't want to be behind a desk. I knew I wanted to be walking around and talking to people. And so I decided restaurants looked like a good idea. I actually didn't have any experience at the time I decided that. I got a summer job at a place and, you know, got some experience. And it was pretty shocked when they accepted me at Cornell. Until I realized when I got to school at Cornell that the hotel school was kind of like the, the joke of the school where all the hockey players and football players went so they could, you know, get grades. For example, when I was a senior, my best class at Cornell was casino management. And um, I got A+. And for the field trip, they took us to the Playboy Casino in Atlantic City. So, you know, it wasn't as like being an engineer at Cornell. But you worked in Atlantic City after that, right? Yeah, I did. I really liked the idea of Atlantic City. And um, What drew you to my, that? I don't know. I'm I mean, not, besides the naked women and stuff. No, no naked women in Atlantic City. I don't know. I always uh, was interested in gambling. And actually, Steve Wynn was kind of coming up at that time. He had owned the Golden Nugget in Atlantic City, and I admired him. I thought he was a sharp guy. But I, I ended up not working for him. And my first job out of college was as an operations analyst at the Claridge Casino and Hotel. And um, that was a great job for me. But why? I mean, you were attracted to the, the money, uh, attracted to the numbers, attracted to the lifestyle. Yeah, attracted I don't know. To the numbers always what? interested me. I was, I was always interested in math a little bit. and um, Probability, I, I guess, chance. Yeah, that always interested me. And also the action. Yeah. You know, there's always 24 hours, something going on all the time. I like that aspect of it. When you were younger. Yeah, when I was you, younger. Now, you like being around that scene. Yeah, now I'm in bed by nine, you know. Yeah. Dinner on the table at six. I mean, let's be honest, 8.30. <laughs> 8.30, exactly. Unless there's something really good on TV. <laughs> Depends what's on. <laughs> Working in a casino, what was that like? You had fun? Or? Yeah, I did. I, I had a great time. And I wasn't, I was uh, working directly for the food and beverage director, a man named Barry Cregan, who taught me really everything about the restaurant business. Because you go to Cornell and you study restaurant management, you don't really learn anything until you get out into the world and start doing it. Like any it. school. Yeah, yeah, like any school. And so um, he was fantastic. And I, he gave me access to every area of the hotel and mostly back of the house stuff. But I worked in the butcher shop. I worked in the stewarding. I, I worked in the kitchen. And, you know, I helped him with all kinds of operational things and crunching numbers. And he taught me all about controls. So, so was it the fact that you could see the show and the strings? behind the show was yeah. that the was that the appealing part you it, got to be in the back of the house exactly. check it out this and that yeah. this is how it works you this see is how, how it all we comes do together this. and i really didn't get much front of the house experience there but the back of the house experience was fantastic and um it taught me about controls early on which still to this day you're always thinking of when you're doing a wine list or you know so what's that mean? Like you have a pit boss at, at uh, the restaurant uh, making sure that uh, no one's cheating the house? Well, or, you know, you have the VIPs. It's a similar thing, right? Sure. Get, get, you know, they don't Give get comps. Give them breakfast comps. But, uh, you know, comps and, yeah, right. Free buffet comp. <laughs> we'll see you in the morning. You know? Right. <laughs> no, but I mean, seriously, what are controls? Uh, how does that play out in the, the wine business today for you? Well, as far as cost goes yeah. and how to, how to mark up a list and how to do it fairly. You know, one of the things we I was able to do at Tribeca Grill over these years, it's 25 years now, was to have a fair markup and not to increase prices exorbitantly as our seller grew. So to be able to offer aged wines at a fair price. And it's, it's rare. I mean, I think that a lot of people in the business, restaurants and hotels especially, have such high markups that the con general consumer thinks they're getting ripped off when they walk into a place. And um, I always thought that was terrible. At our place, I've always made it fair. Uh, the pricing and to this day it's still the, the fairest pricing no but, but so that's a big uh 
gap of time between you when you were at the casino when yeah. you worked at Tribeca Grill. So what happened out at the casino? So well, I worked there for a year in nineteen. I got uh, worked there from eighty two to eighty three, and then uh, I decided that I wanted to come back to New York. And uh, between eighty three and ninety, I worked at a bunch of different places until I finally worked for. Um, for Drew at Tribeca Grill. But you worked for like Barry Wine and stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, I, that was like a legendary dude, right? Yeah. I worked for Barry Wine when he opened the Casual Quilted Giraffe, which was his second restaurant in 1986. Barry was a self-taught chef who modeled the Quilted Giraffe on three-star Michelin French restaurants. But the food was very accessible. And he opened the Casual Quilted Giraffe. It was a, a very large menu, open all day. And it, the way he did the wine list was, it was a very small wine list, and it was good, fine, superb, and exceptional, something like that. Those were the categories. Those were the categories. And in those categories, he had three or four selections. And like I, on the list, it said, this is good, yeah, this is very good. It. And then there were packages where if you bought, you know, duck comfy and a good bottle of wine, there would be, you know, a certain price. Um, he was famous for, he created the beggar's purses, which were these little uh, caviar purses with caviar sour cream, and, you know, there was a... A dish that was very copied back then. I mean, I think Tom Colicchio worked for Barry. A lot, a lot of great chefs came through his system. But he, he was very, very bright. He was a lawyer before he became a restaurateur, and so he was a complete amateur, never went to cooking school. And um, being exposed to just the way he thought about things was very interesting for me. And again, I was, you know, in my 20s at the time, and it was a hot place that opened. Susan, his wife, ran the front of the house. And... uh that was just a great learning experience for me. There was a lot of people, and he allowed me, since I was interested in wine back then, to write the descriptions for the uh, wine list, which only had maybe a dozen wines. And um, you're like, good, good, yeah, right, good. The good ones are good, (laughs) but back then, some of your listeners are too young to know this, but there wasn't an internet, and so if you wanted to research wine, you had a couple of choices. You could buy wine books. Or you could look at the publications. Back then, it was basically The Wine Spectator and uh, Robert Parker. And uh, I subscribed to both of those. And there was no, obviously, no blogs and no, no way that you could instantly look up a wine. So it was, it, I enjoyed that. And I, I bought a, a ton of wine books back then. That's how I learned about wine. I just bought books and I went to trade tastings. You know, so I, being able to do the descriptions helped me to learn about those wines. And then I just really got interested around that time. And you worked over at Gotham for a while. I worked at Gotham when Scott Carney, who's a master sommelier, was the GM at the time, also in the mid-80s, and I worked as a manager there. And that that was a very um, also profound experience because Scott was really into wine, although there wasn't a sommelier then. And really, sommeliers didn't exist in the 80s to any great extent. A few restaurants had them. And, uh, but Scott loved wine. And so he had a bunch of wine that wasn't on the list and, and he would always be changing it. And, you know, once in a while he would ask us if we wanted to chip in for a bottle at cost with the other managers. So we bought one time, the one that I remember the most was a bottle of Grange, which back then was called Grange Hermitage. And, uh, I think it was like $8 each. It maybe cost 40 bucks. And, uh, we all had a glass. It was like five or six of us. And that was incredible for me. That really, I had never had a wine that had that much complexity, that much intensity. And uh, of course now, you know, if you showed me a bottle of Australian Shiraz, I would, I would say, you know, where's the Chateau de Pop? Back then though, that was um, really, uh, that was really eye-opening for me at that time. It was a more rustic style back then too. Yeah. You know. And, um, but it was a powerful wine and it really, I thought, wow, this, there's something going on here. So that, that was one of the big things for me back then. And you were at the Water Club for a while. And I worked at the Water Club, owned by Buzzy O'Keefe, who had, has the River Cafe, and both still open now. And uh, at the Water Club, I also got interested in wine. I was working in banquets. But um, the beverage director back then, Sam Carenti, who I believe is still there, didn't like to go to tastings. So he, he asked me if I wanted to go. So I, would like, I was like, great. And he said, take notes. So I went to these trade tastings, I, I took notes, I tasted all these wines that I had no idea really what they were at the time, and um, come back and tell Sam about it. And that was really, again, one of the pivotal moments for me in my interest in wine. Again, at the Water Club, and even at the River Cafe, where Joey Delicio is, is the wine director and has been there, I think, 35 years or so, they didn't work the floor. 
So the captains had to be trained and, and the waiters. And so I would sit in, they would do staff trainings of back then. And I would always sit in, even though as a banquet waiter, I didn't have to, because I was interested. And I was just started to learn more about it at that time. So there weren't a lot of sommeliers around, really. No, and 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 I have to mention, you know, Kevin Zraeli, who is known more for Windows on the World wine course than anything, to me is someone who's been almost entirely forgotten by young sommeliers. You never hear his name mentioned, but he was the first American sommelier, and he started in New Paltz before he came to Windows, and there was no such thing as a sommelier working the floor at a restaurant. It, if there were, there were one or two, maybe the 21 Club, maybe Lutes, maybe you know a French restaurant like that. And it was a guy with a taste of van around his neck, and it was a very snobby thing. And Kevin you know, helped demystify all that. And he really made it a career where you could think about, well, I, I could do this and learn about wine. Now it's second nature. Everyone's a sommelier. Now, everyone who's a waiter, uh, uh, you know, people come to the restaurant, oh, I want to be a sommelier. And it's, there was no such thing. All the jobs I had, including to when I started Tribeca Grill, were management jobs. And I also did the wine buying. So it wasn't like, oh, I'm coming here as the wine director. You know, I was the manager. I brought, I, you know, helped run food. I hired the bus boys and, the, you know, did everything that we had to do. Do the voids. Yeah, void things. Hit the and, comp and, and work make the, sure the door's and locked at the, the end the door. of the night. And yeah, and close the restaurant. And I did that for many years. So um, that's one of the most incredible changes we've seen is that it's actually a career that took you by surprise yeah it did but it's gratifying to see it and it goes hand in hand with consumers customers learning more about wine and then that's that's what drives it right and also restaurateurs acknowledging that it's a way to make money my whole thing when i was starting since since i uh started when there weren't any sommeliers I felt like the biggest thing for me was to make it approachable. I feel like sommeliers now can often look down upon their customers. It's like, we all know what's good. You know, we, we know what the good stuff is. And you really don't know because you're ordering Opus One or you're ordering whatever the most popular expensive wine is. You're missing out somehow. And I hate that. I hate that. If someone wants to order Opus One, they're going to pay a lot of money for it should be very happy and take that order. Now, it doesn't mean you can't say, well, have you tried something else, you know, that may, you know is really more interesting, but has the same palate profile. Because a lot of times those guys are like, well, we're customer advocates. We want them to drink better for less. You know, you right. could pay $400 for Opus One, but we want to introduce you to this thing that's really good for 100 You may not have heard of. You know, sometimes people say that. Right. They say that. I mean, you know. But <clears throat> have you met anyone who ever does it? Well, not, I, I, from, not 400 to 100 well, Maybe 400 to 350 I would say. <laughs> But, um, you know, not anyone that's working at Tribeca <laughs> Grill anymore. That's that's true. Yeah, they don't. We showed that guy the door a long time ago. <laughs> that's right. Do you see other kind of general differences between the generations of sommeliers? Yes. One of the biggest differences is we could drink the great wines because they were affordable. So when we wanted to taste something like, you know, Rousseau Chambertin or Chateau Lafitte or one of the, I mean, once in a while, you know, you could buy those wines. And back then in the early 90s, when I'm talking about late 80s, and even other wines, I mean, now Bordeaux, Burgundy are out of the price range of, of a sommelier to drink and most of their customers. It's just become an elite thing. So they don't really, ha they haven't had the chance to taste a lot of those wines um, unless they're working on an event like La Polay or, or, you know, a special event. And so they, they don't have a choice. They have to expand their horizons to more interesting like some um, of that esoteric stuff. Yeah, some of the esoteric, like, and that doesn't have to be that esoteric. What are they going to buy the yeah, $1,000 wine right, they don't they, know? And, right, they you know, can't. They I haven't mean, tasted the wines. So they, there's a part of them that kind of poo-poo those wines, but those wines are still great. And, you know, of course, Loire Valley, Reds were something that you didn't even have on the list at Tribeca Grill when it opened. You know, of course, you had Sancerre, but you didn't have Chinon. And, um, you know, but you had Chardonnay de Pop, you had Hermitage, you had several Burgundies, Bordeaux, California. And, you know, so... But um, it also goes with the food there, right? I yeah. mean, you're talking about a lot of meat and potatoes and, you know, right. like, you know, it's this Ex kind of food. Exactly. Right? Like if you were serving ceviche, you might have 
done something else. Something you, else. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, but even, I mean, even German Riesling was, you'd have your one token German Riesling on the list. And, well, and, no, that's not true. Come on. You guys yeah. had a bunch of Riesling. Well, not the, at the beginning. Okay. What I'm saying at the beginning. Because you guys. We did do have a lot of Riesling now, and the reason why we still have it is because we don't sell it. sell, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and Yoshi Takamura, who was, <laughs> you know, one of my, my manager, who was also my first sommelier, you know, bought it, loved Riesling and bought a ton of it. And anytime he comes back now, he can have a bottle because it's still there. <laughs> he left 10 years ago. Yeah, well, I remember when I first got into town, like 2004, going to Tribeca Grill and seeing like 1990 Alsace, you know, Riesling, Pinot Blancs and, you know, yeah. stuff like that. Yep. I was like, wow, this yeah. is an awesome place. You know, yeah, like, for $5 more, you can get that again. <laughs> <laughs> Come in tonight. But but I'm, the point I make about the sommeliers is just that th that I think that they have to be more attuned to what customers might want. It doesn't mean they're selling out or anything. I just don't like the attitude of looking down on a customer. That's that's what bothers me the most. Of course, you want to expand, and you know, I mean, I go out some of these lists. I I can't even find anything I understand to buy. So if I can't, you know, what does that leave the customer? I totally understand that, and uh, I, I guess I'm just playing devil's advocate when I say that I think some of the the customers also like yeah. that experience like yeah. the younger people they don't want to be like their parents right. i think as customers they don't want to right. drink what their parents no did. i think you have a good point and i you know i don't think it's the tribeca girl clientele so i don't it's think not. you have to change i just right. you know right. you know what i'm saying yeah 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 but i think that it's unfortunate that there's a kind of a thing where like we know better than you do that's all i hear it. That you're attitude, a regular guy that, yeah, you're a regular that, guy and you what, would like that to be part of wine because service. when i started there wasn't a sommelier position right, right so right. i really loved wine right and and pushed it to become that and i'm not saying young sommeliers don't love wine but i we had to go through a struggle to even get there that's what i'm saying Right. Um, and so. And the, these kids, they don't appreciate this nice house <laughs> exactly. I bought. You're sitting on my couch. You know how much I had to work for <laughs> exactly. that couch. I mean, when you have, you know, seven sommeliers at a pizzeria, and I'm going to mention any names, but it's not Defara's in Brooklyn, you know, that's unheard of when I was starting out. How did you end up at Tribeca Grill? I mean, how did that come about? I had worked for uh, Drew Naporant when I was in, still in college. Drew was a Cornell grad as well. And um, 1980, I was looking for a summer job and they, there was a sign up at Cornell, apply a tavern on the green, see Drew. And he um, was looking for waiters because the garden was open only in the summer at tavern. And if you remember, I don't know, you're probably too young, but tavern on the green was a major restaurant back then. It was the highest grossing restaurant in the country owned by Warner Leroy, who was a Hollywood guy and very fancy chandeliers and all kinds of stuff. And a real fun place and an overwhelming place to be. And um, Drew, he was the restaurant director. And I really took a liking to him immediately. Drew was in his 20s. I was 20 years old. He's, he was 25. Uh, he knew everyone's name in the place. There were about 300 employees. Drew used to do an orientation with every new member of the staff that was several hours long. He talked about the history of Tavern. He also did a daily meeting with the waiters, which there were like, you know, 40 waiters and he would talk about who was coming in he would talk about the food specials the pairings wine suggestions and he was completely dynamic just a dynamic energetic person he knew everybody who came in knew the customers knew all their names he was funny he was but he had a charisma that you can't teach he had a charisma that um you can study that but you have to have it and that that was one of his strongest suits Besides having a love of restaurants and service, he really knew how to talk to people. Did he, you admire that? Because I know that's, that's something you had to work at a little bit. Yeah, I did admire that because I wasn't outgoing at that time. Still not outgoing. But I saw the way he treated people and I thought, I'm going to work for this guy someday. Because of his knowledge, his energy, and his enthusiasm. And so uh, when I got out of college in 82, I kept in touch with Drew. He was doing other things. He opened Montrachet in 85. I kept an eye on him. I would visit him and keep in touch. And then when he opened Tribeca Grill, I worked some of the opening parties for him. And then six months into the restaurant, he needed another manager and he called me and, and that's how I started. What was it like uh, as a manager at Tribeca Grill? Tribeca Grill at that time was a very exciting restaurant to be in. It was owned by, it still is owned by a group of investors led by Robert De Niro. But some of the other investors were... So he's got the same name as a famous movie actor. Same name. Well, I call him Bob, but I don't suggest you do. 
So we also had Bill Murray, Christopher Walken, Sean Penn, Barishnikov. It was a group of celebrities who owned it. And um, if you know history of restaurants, back then around 1990, there was another celebrity-owned restaurant called Planet Hollywood, which got a lot of press because Schwarzenegger and Bruce Willis and other people were involved in that. But that this the difference with De Niro's place was that Drew was there. So he made it a destination for food people because he had Montrachet, which was a very successful three-star restaurant. And so it became not only uh, a place for foodies to go, but because of the De Niro and celebrity connection, the owners of Miramax were investors, Harvey and Bob Weinstein. So it was a, an amazing place to be. We did a party for Nelson Mandela when he was freed from prison. So it was that kind of place. People, every night it was, you know, another celebrity and there was a screening room upstairs that still exists where we do parties. And so there was a lot going on there. You're like, oh, sorry, just one moment. Let me get the door. Oh, hey, Mr. Eastwood. Sorry, I didn't know you were coming through. <laughs> exactly. Like that kind of stuff. Yeah, it was that kind of stuff. It's fun. You know, if you're going to have to serve coffee to somebody, you might as well be Madonna. So the wine list was 60 wines and uh, Daniel Jonas was consulted on it. Daniel Jonas was doing the list back yeah, in the day. Yeah, he did the list from the very beginning and he worked at Montrachet at the time. And I was hired as a manager. I came in and gradually over a period of a couple of years, I took over the wine program. Daniel was building a program at Montrachet and uh, starting an import business. And um, he, uh, you know, he's very into wine. And I really, I learned a lot from him, especially his, his entrepreneurial spirit. I saw that he was able to work at Montrachet and build up his own business and his own contacts. And I saw that working with Drew, I would be able to do that as well. And so- Drew uh, kind of let you do your thing. Yeah. Drew is the right person for me to work for. Uh, he's very supportive of anything you did. If there was press, he would always include you. And he also allowed you to work on your own. If you had a consulting opportunity, he was happy to let you do that. And that was big for me. That was, that's why I stayed so long. Cause it's been a while. 25 years. And then previously you were moving every couple of years kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. So and since 1990, that's been my only job. And that's really the only place I wanted to work restaurant wise. So it's, it's been there 25 years. That's an accomplishment, too. I mean, it's not every restaurant in New York. I think so. And when we started back in Tribeca, it was basically just the Odeon and Montrachet were the other restaurants. I think Boulay might have been open by then. So the neighborhood has exploded. And part of it had to do with De Niro having the film center there, which is above us. Uh, his office is above us. And part of it had to do with housing and the restaurant scene. But uh, it's un completely unrecognizable from 1990. So what's yeah. it like working with De Niro? I mean, are you like, hey, Bob, I got some ideas on your next role. Or you ever just, you know, oh, maybe you should have done it like this or no. You know, like um, since I'm not retiring yet, <laughs> I'm probably not going to say anything about Bob De Niro, except that my interaction with him has been really positive. He likes wine. He uh, asks for, his people ask for my advice on wine gifts over the years and different things. I helped him with his wine cellar at home. He's a complete gentleman. He's very shy. And when he comes into the restaurant, he keeps to himself, he sits in the back. People are always looking, oh, well, like they're going to see Bob De Niro in the front. He's not going to be in the front. He's always going to be in the back. And um, he's, he's been nice to you. He's been nice to me personally, and, and he's been very supportive of the restaurant. He's gone on, as everyone knows, to, he's a partner in Nobu, which Drew is as well. And he's opened other, other restaurants and hotels. But um, Tribeca was his first, and he still has his office upstairs, and we still see him all the time. And it's, it's been great. But I mean, the early days of Myriad, you guys were like the kings, man. You yeah. had Rubicon, you had Tribeca Grill, you had Montrachet. I yeah. mean, Myriad. It yeah, was like a Myriad. thing coming up as a, as a wine yeah, person. And then, and like, then Nobu, Nobu, which came up about five years after Tribeca, that really exploded. That Rubicon around the same time was very big for Myriad. And we were consulting on a lot of different projects. And that's where I had the opportunity to do that consulting on different wine lists I worked on Nobu's list for many years. I had other opportunities within the group. And that was something that kept me interested in staying at the restaurant. So you didn't get bored. You could do I this, didn't get bored. you could do that. And that as well as we decided, Marty Shapiro has been the managing partner there from day one, 25 years. He and I decided that it would be a great idea to build the wine list and to make the wine list something special. And if we could pull it off, because Tribeca was casual, it still is. You didn't see a big wine list in a casual place like that. So when we decided to do that in the mid-90s, we had originally had a 60-item wine list with a one-line description underneath. 
At one point, we added an all-American reserve list that we served to added to the table. And then we bought a wine cellar with Montrachet. And someone's personal cellar, it was legal to do that then. And we had to build a wine cellar downstairs. And to this day, we still have all the wine on premise. We don't warehouse anything. We built three cellars downstairs. Our building is an old warehouse built in the early 1900s. It used to be the Martinson Coffee Warehouse. So there's all kinds of space downstairs. And it's great to be able to have everything there at your fingertips, all the wine, although it's not always easy to find. So in about 1998 or so, our list grew to five or 600 selections, 700 selections. And Marty and I decided that we try to go for a grand award with the spectator and build it up a little more to maybe a thousand. And at that point, we made Patrick Capiello the first sommelier. Uh, he was a waiter at the time. I've heard of that guy. He ended up doing okay. It's interesting when you talk about sommeliers because Patrick was a natural. And the reason he was a natural was not because he knew that much. He actually didn't know that much. He came as a waiter and just was interested in it. But I saw in him a person who could talk to the table and talk to anybody and get along with the staff. And he was so, had such enthusiasm. And I'm so, I'm so happy for him because he's done so well. But he really has a talent similar to Drew's in that he can talk to anybody. And of course, in the time since he started Tribeca, which was about, you know, year, I think 2000, maybe 15 years ago, of course, his knowledge has increased exponentially. But at the time, I knew that he was going to be great. And he was great for us. What I like about Patrick the most is his laugh. He loves to laugh. Yeah. Patrick's very funny. He would do imitations of everybody on the staff, including me. And, um, which I never realized about myself, how I was until I saw Patrick do me. Yeah, and then the list just grew from there. But I mean, why'd you guys make that decision? Do you have an inspiration to change a list like that? I mean, you started really small and then, you know, what happened? It was customers were asking or you saw something? Or? There was an interest in the customers on the All-American Reserve list. We saw they were willing to spend some more money. And we also realized that we couldn't really do more covers than we were doing at the time. Uh, the food was what it was, meaning... We're, it's a busy place. We do between 200 and 500 dinners a night. So it was never going to be fancy or food wise. So to increase revenue and to keep our interest, we did it. And that was the reasoning. And I decided at the time that I wanted to focus on Rhone wine, specifically Chateauneuf de Pas. And why did you make that choice? I made that choice because I had been inspired by going to Willie's Wine Bar in Paris and seeing that you could go in there and have a great glass of Rhone wine. And it was unusual. Uh, for most places because Rhone wine was still not that popular. And I love Rhone wine. And I thought because of the price point, we'd be able to build a list, offer maybe 50 or 75 Chateauneuf de Pops and keep them all under a hundred bucks or under 125 bucks. And that's what our customer would spend. So in building a list, it didn't make sense to me to buy a lot of expensive Burgundy and a lot of expensive Bordeaux. We stuck to, at the beginning, California, which was a natural for us as an American grill and Rhone. And at the time, everyone did California, but nobody did Rhone. And so we started buying heavy in a 1998 vintage, and we're fortunate that there were four great vintages, right? That until, played until into your hand one. a little bit. Yeah, played into our hand. The prices were very affordable at the time. And so we bought uh, fairly large quantities of wines back then. And um, we found that the style of Chateauneuf de Pop worked well with the food. The food was kind of robust, and the wines are robust. It also was easy to get someone to order Chateau of the Pop if they're ordering a full-bodied American wine. So if someone is ordering Zinfandel, you can turn them onto a Chateau of the Pop. Uh, Syrah, or even Cabernet. It's not that far out of the wheelhouse. And we found after selling these wines for a couple of years and having some aged examples, it was really something special to be able to offer a customer something aged under 100 bucks. It was a bridge to the old world that people drinking cabins in could easily cross. Exactly. Price point and style. Right. And the main thing for me was the price point, I have to say, besides the style, because I looked at those back then, I looked at the Grand Award winners, and they were museums. Why put on 1945, Lafitte, and all these wines that were thousands of dollars when our customers weren't going to spend that? We did buy Burgundy, but we didn't buy Domaine Romanicanti back then. You could buy Mounier Moussigny and Chambol Amaroux for $100 a bottle and put it on for $250. That would be the high end. You know, we weren't buying wines that were thousands of dollars on our list. As you're learning about these wines, that seems like a big jump. I mean, you learn about wine at, as a banquet waiter at, at the Water Club, and then you're here at the center of the universe. Robert De Niro and Robin Williams are coming in, and all of a sudden you're 
tasked with building this big list. I mean, obviously, there's a few years of difference here, but that seems like a big evolution for you, too. Yeah, but it was over a course of years. And the other important item that happened was in 1991, Kevin Zraeli organized a group of sommeliers to work at the wine experience. And they... He was in charge of the wine experience at the time. He was the MC and also ran the show there. That's the and wine spectator. Yeah, event. it was a wine spectator event that still goes on to this day. And so I had the opportunity to work behind the scenes. And what we did was pre-taste every bottle of wine before they went out for the seminars. And we pulled out the cork bottles. And there were about a dozen of us. And I got in because Daniel said they needed extra people. Daniel so Jonas kind of gave Jonas me a lift. Was very nice to offer me these kinds of opportunities. And... At the event, Larry Stone was there, Roger Degorn, Peter Granoff, Ed Osterland. They were all master sommeliers, Steve Olson, a lot of knowledgeable people, and me. And so I thought, well, this will be a learning experience, but I don't know if I can identify all these cork bottles. I was a little nervous. And in the first day of doing it, I realized when I found my first cork bottle and I pulled it out, I was like, hey, and, and someone checked it. And they were like, yeah, it's corked. I was like, hey, I can do this. And the big tasting that year was DRC. So it was really an experience because we had to tilt the bottles a certain way. We actually poured the wine for about a thousand people in the seminars. And I had never tasted any wines that good. I had never served any wines that were older like that. There were some older wines in there. I mean, it's a tasting that could never be replicated now. It included Montrachet and Romani Conti. And just being with those guys and the camaraderie, working a couple of days, you got there at seven in the morning, the seminar started at nine and it was over two days, was just a great experience. And to this day, I continue to work that event. It's every October. I've done it uh, since 1991. I've only missed one year. And um, not only is it great to be able to taste that many bottles of the same wine, it's such a rare opportunity because they you taste about five cases. So you taste 60 bottles of you know, Angelo Gaia, Barbaresco, or, you know, one of his wines. And then over the course of seven vintages or something. But to taste those wines and to see the bottle variation when they age, and just to be able to pick out flaws, not always cork, but different flaws, it's a tremendous experience. And um, it's the same thing. It's a great group of sommeliers who do it. It's almost a lot of the same people each year. And we have a blast, even though we're at, it's drinking at 7 a.m. It's not my typical time to drink. But um, usually you prefer uh, 6 a.m. <laughs> right. But so, it seems like camaraderie has been a big thing for you the whole way through. That's it. That's it's, part of your style. That's a big thing for You've me. You've enjoyed that. Yes. I enjoy it. I enjoyed working with Patrick and Yoshi. And um, we worked together for about five years. Yoshi Takamura was manager at the time. And uh, we did many, many wine dinners together. And I enjoyed the wine experience for that reason, for seeing the other sommeliers. And also you get to know what other sommeliers are doing around the country because they bring you know, fly in from everywhere. And it's a similar situation with La Pole. Which was an event you were involved with from the beginning. Right. Also because of Jonas. Exactly. Daniel Jonas's name has been mentioned already too much in this podcast, so hopefully you'll edit out some of these references. But uh, he, La Pole is his event. and How did that get started? <clears throat> so La Pole got started, I think the first year was 2000. And uh, it was Daniel's idea to take this event that was a harvest festival in Merceau, La Palais de Merceau, that they had done for many, many years. And the first year, of course, we did it at the W Hotel. We had no idea what to anticipate. And there was about 15 of us. I remember Karen King being one and a couple other people. And uh, it was a complete, we had no system. People brought wines. We didn't know what to do. And a lot of people didn't bring wines and didn't understand that they were a, supposed to bring that wine. they were supposed to bring wine. It was a learning curve. There were sponsors who just showed up who didn't have wine, and it was pretty crazy the first year. And um, but Daniel learned from it, and I learned from it each year. And now it's become an annual event. One year in San Francisco, one year in in New York. At what point did you realize, hey, I think this has become kind of a big thing? Yeah, it was about. Six or seven years ago, we started to get so many requests for oh, sommeliers. Also, when I first started doing it. When That's you started what, yeah. is when it Right about changed. the time I got involved. You guys, exactly. Is that yeah. when you got involved? I, it That's must be a coincidence. Yeah, it's a coincidence. But, but it's become a, a fantastic success. It's gone from one day to four or five days now with rare wine dinners and other things. And it just is a great thing because it gives you an opportunity to taste wines that you could never taste. Do you think La Palle has affected the culture? I mean, does it seem like people know more about Burgundy now yeah. or more interested yeah. in Burgundy? Like consumers. Yeah. Um, I think it definitely has affected the price of Burgundy. 
certainly built interest in the category of Burgundy. And I think that's a great thing because those wines, I think most people who learn about wine learn about Bordeaux first and Cabernet first and powerful wines first, and then come around if they're still interested in wine to Pinot Noir and Burgundy and wines that are, are a little bit more feminine and more elegant and not just all about power. And so that's a good thing. And um, there's nothing like great Burgundy to me. I, I just love it. And what's happened with La Polet is the interest in sommeliers wanting to work the event also is great because it's, there's an educational aspect to that. We try to always incorporate younger sommeliers into the mix of the La Polet sommeliers and also try to honor the ones who have worked and done a good job over the years. But there's tremendous interest in sommeliers wanting to work the event. It gives them a chance to taste these great wines. And also, you brought up camaraderie. It's a fantastic event for camaraderie. You learn who you like to work with, who are the really good guys, and you're working with people from all over the country, and also the people who, who are disappointing. And we won't mention any names, but I could. But really, that's what I love about it. I love the camaraderie and working with Patrick and Daniel and all the other, a lot of the other guys I've been working with, women and men over the years, is really fun for me. And that's why I continue to do it. It's not for the big payday. I mean, these are your friends, these people you're right. talking about. Those we become are... friends, and, and it, it's also interesting to talk to sommeliers from other parts of the country and see what they're into and what their programs are like. When you're in New York, you think it's the center of the universe, and it may be so, the center of the restaurant universe, but there's other places, and it's nice to learn about them as well. Uh, New York, being a born and bred New Yorker, I always assume that every place is worse than New York. However, maybe I'm wrong, but I doubt it. No, but I mean, you, every year you, you have a uh, lunch with Daniel Jonas and, and Patrick and sometimes Yoshi comes and Tim Kopech. Right. I mean, that's something you guys do every year. Yeah. You know? And it's something that we started years ago and we all bring wine and we usually go to a Peking Duck House or some other place where it's casual and we have a great time just talking to each other. and um, we Busting just, each other's balls. Yeah. Insulting each other. And, yeah. Um, it's, it's fun. And that's, you're right. That's a big part of this business for me is the friends I've made and, and being able to hang out with them. Which and, is kind of probably back to your family stuff a little bit. Like yeah. you had a funny brother, you busted his balls, he busted your chops. Right, You know, exactly. your dad used to joke around. Yeah. There was generational stuff going on. That's right. You know what I mean? Yeah. It sounds kind of like how you grew up. Yeah, and it's one of the reasons I was attracted to the restaurant business also. I knew I didn't want to just sit at a desk in, in a cubicle, although I don't think cubicles were invented when I was looking. But... uh you know, I knew I wanted to be out and talking to people and being around people. And so I, I ended up really enjoying that part of it. But sometimes it was hard for you to talk to people when you were younger. That's right. And it was nice that Drew was kind of a front man for you. Like yeah. He kind of set a tone and, and you could be part of his crew. And, and he still is. And going to an event with Drew is the best thing you can ever do. If you go to the James Beard Awards with Drew, you just walk around next to him and meet everybody. You meet everybody. And um, it's something I wouldn't do on my own, go up and speak to everybody. I wouldn't go up to Wolfgang Puck and start talking to him. But, of course, Drew knows everybody and talks to everybody. And so it's, it's, it's a great relationship in that regard. And Drew always treated you with respect. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's been, it's been great working for Drew. I couldn't imagine working for someone else, actually. And I'm saying that in real life, not only because we're on a podcast, because I'm sure Drew stopped listening about 40 minutes ago. You'd had some public speaking difficulty that you kind of overcame on a cruise ship, but it was originally difficult for you. Yeah. Yeah. I was always afraid of public speaking. It was one of my biggest fears. And I got offered an opportunity to do a couple of lectures on a cruise line, on crystal cruises. This was in the mid 90s. And I'd never done anything like that before, speaking to consumers and on a stage with a microphone. And I was very, very nervous about it. And I ended up preparing my remarks, memorizing them, and it was a wine tasting. It was only 45 minutes, but it was a big hurdle for me to overcome. And once I did it and realized I could do it, I was very satisfied and was able to continue doing it. And I realized that I could get better at it by practicing and by doing more speaking engagements. And to the point where, you know, a few years ago, I, I don't get nervous anymore in speaking in front of groups. No, you're really funny, actually. And, yeah. And, and comfortable and, and funny. And the funny part is important, I think, and you hear comedians say this, but once you make a joke and you get them laughing, it, it's much easier. You, you calm down, your anxiety goes away. And um, that was one thing that was very pivotal for me, is doing these uh, cruises and doing the, 
essentially you had to lock yourself onto a boat to make yourself a better like you had to like be like there's no way out of this except me no way to get out of it talking well for this group i used to get nervous even at wine dinners just to introduce the speaker and when i did wine dinners at tribeca grill and and now i would just do dinners and not prepare any remarks and just off the cuff kind of like how you do a podcast (laughs) similar to this experience yes but I mean, I, I kind of almost feel like that, uh, that's kind of the key to your customer relation too, because you kind of have this empathy for the customer being anxious and not knowing what to do. And, yeah. and you want to make them feel more comfortable. That's, and so you want things that they can latch on to, prices that they can afford. That's part of your style. You feel like people might be anxious, right? Right. And I think when people, when it comes to the wine list, a lot of people who are very successful in business and very acclaimed in, in film or theater or actors... They don't know anything about wine, and there could be a little bit of intimidation factor at the restaurant when they have a handed a big wine list or even a small wine list. So I always felt that I wanted to demystify that part of it and be more encouraging and and make it easy for the customer to make a choice. And that's really not something that everyone does. So let me ask you this question. Yeah. What's the difference between putting together a list for a restaurant like Tribeca Grill and a restaurant like Nobu. I mean, those are totally different restaurants because for a while you did both. Well, working with Nobu was very interesting because the list was much smaller. So it's actually easier, as you know, to do a bigger list than it is to do a smaller list. Um, I decided for Nobu, we would do three categories. And I feel like customers order wine by category. In other words, not by country. They don't come in and say, I want a French wine, but I want a light-bodied wine or I want a full-bodied wine or spicy, aromatic wine, floral. And so I created the list at Nobu that way. So we had three categories for the white wines, light, crisp, refreshing, spicy, aromatic, rich and full, and then comparable ones for the red wines. And I think that the spicy and aromatic, light, crisp, and refreshing wines go best with the Nobu cuisine. But a lot of the customers wanted to have full-bodied wines. And so you have to offer all of it. And we didn't have a sommelier at Nobu. There still isn't a sommelier on the floor at Nobu. Uh, It's not really about the wine there. There's maybe 80 wines on the list at Nobu. And so I decided that we should have some Rieslings, some Gruneveltliners, some Alsatian wines, some interesting wines, whites mostly. But we see in the sales that big full-bodied Chardonnays, white Burgundies were the bigger sellers. And on the reds, you'd think that some of the spicier reds, lighter reds, Beaujolais and things like that would be what you'd want because there's not a lot of meat on the menu. However, customers would still order Bordeaux and Cabernet. And if that's what they want to have, we want to be able to offer that to them. And so it was interesting to see that. I didn't really predict that at the beginning. I was kind of surprised when I saw the sales reports. And I did a lot of training at Nobu, which was also very good. They're very well informed, the captains there, and they were interested in learning about wine. But again, without having a sommelier on the floor, they often revert back to what's more comfortable, what they can pronounce easily, what the other customer just liked, who came in yesterday and who liked it. So um, it was interesting to do those two types of lists, but it is harder to doing a smaller list. So with Tribeca Grill, what is it evolved into? I mean, what is it now? It started quite small. You added a reserve list and... You decided to go for the Grand Award, so you added more selections. What does it look like today? I mean, if I were to go in there. Well, now the Tribeca list has about 2,000 selections. We're set at that around that number. We don't want it to grow any longer. We have three temperature-controlled wine cellars downstairs. And we do focus on Rhone wine still in California. We do have a lot of Burgundy. And as we mentioned earlier, Burgundy has become much more popular. And we do have the kind of clientele, the Wall Street clientele, who will come in and spend money on Burgundy. And so we, we keep a great Burgundy list also, but we have everything and we have Spanish wine and we have, you know, Australian wine. We have something for everybody. It's a very diverse clientele. And we've also come to the point where we need two sommeliers working the floor. Every day we keep all of our wines, except for some white wines that are at the bar. We keep them downstairs. So sommeliers are constantly running downstairs to bring up wine at the proper temperature, which we always serve our wines at the proper temperature. And it's become a dynamic wine destination, I believe, as well as keeping pace on the food side. We just hired a new chef, Richard Corbo. He's only the fourth chef we've had in 25 years. And all the chefs we've had have been very interested in wine. And the chefs being into wine makes it a lot easier to do a wine dinner. 
And we did some great ones in the peak in the 90s of uh, cult wines. We closed the restaurant a couple of times. We did a Helen Turley dinner where we featured Marcus on and a bunch of her cult cabernets at the time, Colgan and Bryant. We did it without Helen Turley. I played the part of Helen Turley. And uh, we had sold you, out the restaurant. You're very similar looking. Yeah, it was similar, similar features. And um, it, was, it was really fun to be able to do that. And we also did a dinner with John Schaefer, great, great people. He and his son, Doug, known for years. And uh, we also sold out the restaurant. Usually we have dinners upstairs in our private party room. Seats about 80. Been there a few times. Yeah, been a lot of tastings and stuff. But um, some of the wine dinners were really very successful and fun for me. I actually decided, I listed, I just mentioned two winemaker dinners, but one without a winemaker. But most of the wine dinners I did were dinners that I was interested in. So I would do French versus California dinner and just pull wines from our cellar and do a portion of the dinner blind for consumers who weren't used to that. And that was a fun thing and to compare. It kept you interested too. Yeah, it kept me These interested. These are things you wanted to try. And when you engage the customer with saying, hey, what did you think about that wine? Instead of telling them how good it is, and they have to think about, oh, did I like that? And we would put things like Peter Michael Chardonnay against Raveneau Chablis or, uh, you know, Dovisat, and something that would, was pretty clear that was, to me, that what the French wine would be. But you'd be interested, it'd be interesting to see what the people, the customers thought. They didn't always see it as clearly. And some of them learned quite a bit, and people would always come up after and say how much they enjoyed it. I did... Um, we did a, a dinner where we had every wine that the wine spectator named the best wine of the year. And we did it entirely blind. And that was a huge thing because those wines are so hard to get. Once they're listed as the top wine, wine of the year, you can't buy those wines anymore. So we had sourced all those wines. And uh, we had Marvin Shankin and Tom Matthews from The Spectator come. And everyone was completely blown away by doing it blind. I mean, I think that that made it very interesting for the customers to really concentrate on those wines and, and see. It was interesting to see how they held up. And even the Behringer Private Reserve Chardonnay from 94, I believe, uh, which was probably about 15 years old at the time, held up pretty well. And once you do it blind, it really separates the men from the boys. And I, I love doing blind tastings. It's not the only thing that matters, but I think that if you use it with a, a customer and say you do the first flight that's not blind and the second flight blind, they really start thinking about it. It, it. Engaging the customer is really a, a great thing. Doing a lecture in front of a customer at a wine dinner, and I, I always felt that some winemakers are great speakers, but the reason I decided for a period of years, I did wine all the wine dinners myself because some of the winemakers can go on about yeast and um, can be quite boring and too technical. And I just made it fun. I wanted to make it fun and get feedback from the customer. And I, in, also, it helped you use up some of the wines in the cellar that were unnoticed or weren't selling as well. And it made it fun. All those things, when you're working somewhere for 25 years, you don't want to do the same thing every day. You want to do whatever you can to make it interesting. The guys at the Wine Experience never noticed that you were taking a bottle of the Wine Experience number one wine with Each you. Each year. They never noticed. Home, all not, those not years. Bad. Just carry a bag. <laughs> But uh, it feels like the new world, old world divide was something that has been your whole career. I mean, it feels like the real emergence of the new world as good, fine wine that people would pay money for paralleled with your career. Yes. And, and at the same time, you're talking about Napa cabs and Chardonnays. You're also doing La Palais. And so it's like that, that new world, old world thing where I think if maybe you were to talk on the generation of either side of you, mm -hmm. either the one before you or the one after... I think a lot of them would just be old world. Right. You know what I mean? That's true. And I, I think that's one of the issues. Uh, as you see, a lot of people now, when they like California wine, they're making an excuse. And I say people, I mean a lot of sommeliers, not customers, but a lot of sommeliers are like, oh, I, oh, I like it, even though it was California wine. But, you know, the, the wines that have, that uh, we used to feature quite a bit, we, we don't buy them as much anymore, the cult wines. And I mentioned again, the cabs like that, Harlan Estate and Brian and, and Colgan. They're powerful wines that make an impression on a customer. And it's something you can't really recreate. And so maybe as a sommelier, you think, wow, those are big alcoholic. I couldn't drink that and, and all that. However, when a customer's eating food and they get a glass of that, they're impressed. They're impressive wines. And so it worked quite well at Tribeca Grill, those wines. And um, however, there comes a point where they got too expensive, I think, and we stopped buying those wines. 
we still have a bunch and they still make an impact, I think. But you're right. I did come in when California wine, I wasn't at the Paris tasting, even though I looked that old, but I did come in when California wine was on the rise due to wine spectator, Robert Parker. And we, we embraced those wines. I embraced the wines from, of Helen Turley and Philippe Melka and guys who are making big, robust, flavorful wines in your face wines. And our customers love them. And so I don't want to apologize for those wines. I still like them. I, and I also love Chateauneuf de Pop. What's interesting is a lot of sommeliers will tell you how much they love Burgundy and how much they love balanced wine. But they also love Chateau Reyes and Henri Bonneau, Chateauneuf de Pop. And those wines are never under 15% alcohol. But they're great. They're great. They have enough earthiness and balance. Balance is what matters, at least to me. I would imagine that when a place has been open 25 years, you say like, hey, come and see me sometime. And people are like, oh, I was just there. And you're like, you were just there when? Like a year ago or whatever? Right. Like they, you know, with the constant influx of new restaurants, they might always be looking for the next thing. And, and they think that they've already done the Tribeca Grill. That's so right. So it must be a challenge to be like, hey, you know, come check out what we're doing. You know, that's we're, right. We're here. That's true. It is. And one thing we try to do is that's why we keep the wine pricing so, so fair and so low is we try to remind people, hey, we're still here and we still have these great values on our list. And um, a lot of the press who's writing about new places and new wine programs, it's hard to get them interested in, you know, I, I was just glad that you finally called me. So I think the advantage for you then is to say like, hey, we've been here a while. We're often yesterday's prices as opposed to today's prices. That's right. That's what, we, that's what we do. And we also just try to get the word out. You know, the truth is we're probably behind a little bit on the social media because I don't tweet. Yeah, and, you're not a big tweeter. And, yeah. um, I, we're, we're behind a little bit <laughs> on the social media. Slightly behind. Says. And um, I have probably the only sommelier under 30, Jason, who runs both programs at Tribeca Grill and Batard for me, who also doesn't tweet, you know, has a flip phone or something. You guys met at so. the Curmudgeons Festival? <laughs> exactly. exactly. Andy <laughs> the Rudy Luddites. hosted a yeah, Curmudgeons yeah, Festival. Yeah, yeah. We met there. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. And at our place, we've gone through all of that because we started off being the hot, hip place at the beginning. And then after 10 years, you're not hot and hip anymore. And so, you know, we become the comfortable place where some of the celebrities just like coming in because they like the food and they like the atmosphere. And we also fortunate because we had a back room. I still do. And you'd think a lot of the celebrities would want the option. And some of them do of being kind of private and, you know, certain customers and then you have other people who want to be in the front and it, but it's nice to have give them the choice you know someone like robert de niro doesn't want to be out front he wants to be in in, in the back and and unnoticed and someone like jerry seinfeld was taken to the back and was like what is this i'm not gonna be back here for come on i want to be with the people and you know that's always fun so who are some of the people that have come in over the years? What do you remember about them? So one of, the, one of the best moments for me, I'm, I'm a big basketball fan, and, and Michael Jordan came in a few times. And this is back when he was a big star. This is in the mid-90s. And he actually had retired, and he played baseball for a while. And then he came back, and his, uh, one of his first games was against the Knicks. And he came in the night before. It was a famous game because he scored 55 points against the Knicks. And I got to serve him wine the night before, which was unusual. He used to not, he's not, didn't seem into wine, but he was there with Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd and Ahmad Rashad. And they were right in the front and they call, he called me over and I was excited just to get to talk to him. And um, he ended up pointing to the most expensive white wine on the list at the time, which was Corton Blanc from Chandon de Briay, which is unusual wine. It was something that we had, but it wasn't, we didn't have the big list at the time. And you know, I think it was $125 or something, which was, you know, great. And he was like, what, what do you think of this? And I can't remember what I said because I was actually a little starstruck. And, um, but I told him it was great. And uh, anyway, you know, we ended up serving the wine. And at the end of the meal, he, uh, they all went back into the kitchen, took pictures, you know, with everybody. You know, it wasn't the time of iPhone, so you had to have a camera. Someone had a camera and took some pictures. And couldn't it be nicer? On the way out, our managing partner, Marty Shapiro, said to me, um, see, ask him about my sneakers. He goes, I, I have the same size as him. It's like 12 and a half. They both had 12 and a half. And, and Marty couldn't find the Air Jordans in 12 and a half. 
to in the stores he went. So I was like, you want me to ask Michael Jordan to get you a pair of sneakers? He's like, just ask him. What's his happening? So I was like, you know, feeling pretty friendly with Jordan at the time because I'd served him as wine. So on the way out, I said, I told him a story that Marty couldn't get the sneakers. He goes, give me his card. So I give him, I give him Marty's card. He goes, let me see what I can do. Next night, Jordan goes out, scores 55 against the Knicks. Marty and I went to the game and watched it, which was great. You know, and I'm thinking that, that Corton Blanc was pretty good, right? Didn't slow him down. And then two weeks later, Marty gets a pair of Air Jordans in the mail from Michael Jordan, size 12 and a half, brand new edition, which he slept in for about a week, didn't take them off. And so that was one of the fun times for, for all of us, you know, being able to have our whatever brush with fame, you would call it. I mean, there are many, many other celebrities, but that one stands out to me. Little Corton Blanc, huh? Corton Blanc. And it's funny, you know, sometimes with celebrities that you're really impressed by, you want to have a conversation with. But of course, it's not professional to do so. And you, you're always holding yourself back. But when someone like Billy Crystal comes in, it, you almost feel like you know them. And, uh, you know, Michael Jordan, I had watched him so long, but he was an icon. Billy Crystal, even though he was so famous at the time, you feel like uh, he was very close with De Niro. And so they used to come in quite a bit. And you just feel like, hey, this is a guy I could talk to, you know. And, uh, and they, you know, in that case, he was extremely nice. And we did, we did get a chance to chat. But mostly, you know, you, you can't do it. So let me ask you this. Uh, you know, the, the restaurant's gone through phases, right? It's been the hip, happening spot. Now it's classic spot that a lot of people like to go to to feel comfortable. When you go back to the neighborhood or when you explain to people who don't know you what it is you do, have the words that you use changed over time? I mean, what is the narrative that you tell other well, people about you? Well, it's interesting. I think, you know, people who I know um, who aren't in the business think it's the coolest thing to... First of all, work at Tribeca Grill. Oh, you must know Robert De Niro, that kind of stuff. And then also, they think it's very cool to be in the wine business. Most of them don't know what it means to be in the wine business. And even my parents, to their dying day, would say to me, what do you do anyway? What do you do? You go, I mean, you're, you're a manager at the restaurant. What do you have to do? Don't the waiters just show up? Don't the customers just come in and everyone does their job? What do you do? And, you know, I would just walk away. But... uh it, for me, it hasn't changed. I mean, I'm proud of the restaurant. I love being there, working there. I'm not there as much as I used to be, but I really enjoy saying that I'm the wine director for Tribeca Grill. And it's interesting in a business where a lot of people, there's a lot of turnover in the, the wine profession, in the restaurant profession. It's hard to get, you know, three people like Drew, Marty, and myself have been at the same restaurant for 25 years. There's something to be said for that, whether the loyalty or... Um, and it's, it's gratifying, actually, that we're still open because so many restaurants don't last that long. And um, it's still, after all these years, still a pretty dynamic place to be. One of the things I've really noticed about you is how much respect you have for the generation that came before you and also your peers on the wine side. So who are some of those sommeliers and trailblazers, wine people, and why? I mentioned Kevin Zraeli, and I'll give an example. The first wine book I ever read was Windows on the World Wine Course. And that really got me interested. It's a great first book. And when I was working as a banquet captain at the Water Club, we did a party with Kevin. And I didn't know him. And I, I was excited. I was interested in wine, learning about wine. Like I said, I was going to tastings. And here was Kevin Zarelli coming into the Water Club with a group. And he was like a consultant for this group. And they brought amazing wine. I think it was like 61 Lafitte. Some crazy, crazy, really great wines. And um. At the time, I hadn't been to France, and I, was, I had planned a trip with my wife to go to Burgundy, and I had the nerve to write him a letter after this dinner and say, I was wondering if you could get some appointments for me in Burgundy. We're gonna, I'm going with my wife. So immediately, he sent me a letter. His secretary or assistant sent me back a letter with a letter of introduction to Joseph Drew and Louis Jadot and a couple other places from him. Now, he didn't even know me. And here I was, a guy who was just trying to learn about wine and interested in wine. And Kevin took the time to get us an appointment. And I thought, that's, that's so great. You know, and of course, we went there, had an amazing time. If we just went on our own, we never would have gotten the treatment we would have gotten. But it, since it came from Kevin Zarelli, who was, you know, this famous sommelier at the time. And I always took that as a lesson and thought that that's the way I should treat people. And by nature, I'm not a jealous person. I don't really care if um, someone is doing better than I am. I don't know why that is. I don't know if it's in an upbringing thing, but I'm not jealous of uh, another sommelier who's more successful than I am. I never was. 
I feel like if I wanted to be as successful as they did or do what they did or achieve what they did, I could if I wanted to. So I feel like I'm confident and I don't feel jealous. So if you have that, then you know it's easy to get along with people and, and to be respectful of people because you know um, a lot of uh, other people, and not just sommeliers, but people are you know are sensitive and can't take a joke or they're insecure, and people like that are the ones who tend to be more difficult to get along with. I find for some reason I'm not insecure. I should be from where I grew up, you know, being a Jew in Brooklyn in the sixties, I should be very insecure, but, um, I'm not. So I, I feel like that beginning with Kevin and then in the, uh, early nineties, Kevin's really also offered to start something called the wine buyer circle, which, and he called up sommeliers from around the city and he said, we'll get together and meet with distributors as a group and they can show us their wines and then, you know, we can taste them together and it's better for the distributor and better for us. And I remember Daniel Jonas was in that group, I think Roger Dagorn, and uh, somehow I heard about it and I got invited and um, it was great. It was just like, again, it goes back to the camaraderie thing. Everybody's sitting around and sharing their experience and he was very generous that way, Kevin. And you know, it's a shame that people don't even realize that he was like the first guy to do it. And then, as I mentioned before, Daniel, you know, another person who I've always loved and been impressed by is Rajat Parr. He's a guy who's extremely humble and extremely well-liked and yet super successful. And you could see that by doing it that way, it's, for me, it's, you, you can admire someone. And Larry Stone the same way. I always kid Larry, but, you know, Larry is, is not a guy who's going to talk about his accomplishments and, and brag to you. And I, I never liked that you know, type of person. So I guess that answers your question. David Gordon, he's had respect for a lot of people, both customers and other sommeliers and restaurateurs and chefs in New York at Tribeca Grill. Thank you very much for being here today. Thanks, Levy. I appreciate it. David Gordon of Tribeca Grill in New York. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Skella has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. The best moments are when we, when, we, when Patrick and Daniel and I sit in the office. Sitting, yeah. And, and decide who's not going to work.